you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rael. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. So for many of us, if I were to pass out a sheet of paper and write, have everybody write down what they think the definition of the gospel is, here's the crazy thing. I'd probably get back several different pieces of paper that has say several different things, highlighting different aspects of the gospel, having different phrases. There'd be some common threads, probably things like God loves you or that Jesus died for you, right? But there'd be kind of some, some different differences in how we actually think about the gospel and what we think the gospel actually means. For those of you who aren't familiar with church, maybe you're not really familiar with the, the gospel, you maybe think that's like a genre of music, right? Or you think it's just a good Christian word you throw in to let people know you're actually like following Jesus, like I believe the gospel, right? But you're not exactly sure what that means. And so what I want to do is just get us all on the same page as what we mean when we say the gospel and, and, and how our church believes the gospel forms and shapes us. At Zion, we believe that you can only discover who you are, why you're here, and where you're going in the person and work of Jesus. Now, before we get into what the gospel is, I want to talk about what the gospel is not, because I think this is equally as important. So the first thing I want to talk about is the common framework of secular understanding of the gospel, uh, which I think I have up there. Next slide. Perfect. And so... The, the common framework, when you say something like the gospel, you tell people that you're a Christian, this is typically the framework that they have in their mind. First, there's you at the far end, right? And this is your lifespan here on that linear line. And the decisions that you make either put you up in the good category, right? You helped an old lady across the street. You donated the money to the charity. You did really good, th- right? You're there. And then the bad, you cussed out your coworker. You gossiped behind some people's back, whatever. And your life is just ever like falling on these things, right? Mother Teresa is somewhere really, really, really on the top and Hitler is like setting the bar for the very, very bottom, right? And they think this is the spectrum of life. And when you reach the end, if somehow your good things have kind of outweighed the bad and you've kind of figured things out, then boom, you get to go to the good place, heaven, right? which we don't really have a framework for. We know there's something about angel babies with wings, there's perpetual worship music, there's clouds, we're all these like disembodied spirits, but we know it's better than the alternative, which is hell, right? Which in our mind is fire, pitchforks, a red guy, all this other stuff, you know? And that's the framework that most of the world has about what you believe. This is not the framework of the scriptures. There are part and parcel little tiny things that they've kind of collected and taken from, but this is not the, 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 the whole story of the scriptures. And if you're sitting here thinking, I've been a Christian for a while and I did not know this, this is why we're having this conversation, right? And so this is the framework that the world has, and this is what they think that you believe about God, about the world, about the Bible, about how things work. That you're just a good person over time, you get to go to heaven, bad people go to hell, the end is the end, right? This is not the framework of the gospel, and this is not what the biblical authors believed. The next framework I want to talk about is this. This is the common Christian understanding of the gospel. So even within our own Christian community, this is what our community believes about the gospel. It's this. Here is our experience on earth. 
right? We live, we have this thing. Now, if we believe in Jesus, if we believe the right things about him, and if we say the right prayer, that means that when we die, no matter what, we get beamed up into heaven, like Star Trek, beam me up, Scotty, right? If we just do the right things, believe the right things, have the right theological framework, then when we die, boom, heaven, right? And those who don't have that framework, sorry, not sorry, hell. And that's honestly the framework that most Christians have about the way that the world works, now, there are elements of this that are also true, but this is not the whole story of the scripture, nor is this the thrust of the scripture authors, what they're trying to say, and this is not necessarily what the Bible is trying to teach about the gospel. So you might be wondering, then what the heck is the gospel? I'm glad that you asked. So gospel, the word is in Greek is euangelion. You, it's a, it's a two-part word meaning good, and angelion meaning announcement or message or news and the way that this was typically used in jesus's time is the gospel was not uh, the idea of gospel was not a brand new idea with the church it was actually a word used um, in military conquest so let's say america just took over another land right there's no social media there's no twitter there's no news outlets the way that the news would get across is a herald would come to your town and announce this is what just happened that's your breaking news that's your news anchor someone in this town square hear ye hear ye right and then he'd come and proclaim this message that what just took place right we just overtook another place or there's these things happening here or there and those announcements would be called gospels right there's these announcements of the good news right and particularly when jesus was around in rome anytime rome would overtake somebody it would be viewed as this good news this gospel that rome has continuing the pax romana the peace of rome overtaking some new land or conquered some new people and so the biblical authors take this framework and they, and they adapt it to the person and work of Jesus. And they take this framework, and it's not just specific to the time of Jesus, but even before, they adapted a Hebrew word, which meant the very same thing, basur, and they would use that word um, as like a declaration that someone would make uh, about a new king who's coming to a throne, a new king who's coming to rule and to power. They would use this word gospel to announce this new king. So this is the framework around the word gospel. A good way to think of this is good news. A better way to think of it is good announcement, right? It's this good proclamation. Because for us in the West, news had some bad connotations. When you think news, you think cable news, you think news sound bites, right? But it just means announcement or good message, specifically about a king and about how this message is now shaping the world to be different because of what just happened. That after this, after this announcement, the world will never be the same. This is the framework around the word gospel. And I think Paul here, in our teaching text, gives us the clearest picture of what this announcement, what this good news is. Paul says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel, the good news of God. What is this good news? He says, the gospel, the good news he promised us, uh, he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness was appointed to the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes through faith for his name's sake. And you also were among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ." All right, that's it, guys. Have a good Sunday. Enjoy that. No, I'm just kidding. We'll go ahead and we'll break all this down. 
I think a helpful definition for this is one from John Tyson out of Church of the City, New York, in his book, Kingdom Values. He says this, the gospel is this, the good news that God our Father, the Creator, out of His great love for us, has come to rescue us from sin, the Satan, death, and hell, and to renew all things in and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, to establish his kingdom through his people in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is for God's great glory and our great joy. Notice in these definitions of the gospel, there's no, you just go to heaven when you die, and that's the whole purpose of existence. There's this whole other story being told, this whole nuanced story being told that we are being invited into. So the first thing I want to talk about about the gospel, it is first a promise fulfilled. What we like to do as modern Westerners is come to the scriptures and make them fit our moment and fit our own individualistic agenda. And what we don't do is come respecting what's already been said, right? What's already been told. If you just flip to the gospels and hope to interpret the gospels without having a whole understanding of all the story that's being told, you are ruining it. I want you to think of your favorite movie. Right, you're, you're the favorite movie that you have, if you're a Star Wars fan or whatever, and someone comes in the middle or to the end of the movie, and they just watch the tail end and make inferences about the whole rest of the movie. You're like, you missed the whole thing, man. You missed all the character development, the plot, the story, whatever. We do the same exact thing to the scriptures when we come and superimpose our theological frameworks of the gospel onto a story that's already being told. So when we think of the gospel, we must first think that we are being invited into a story. The whole other half of the scriptures, right? The areas where, if we're honest, if we do the Bible through the year plan, Genesis is strong, right? Exodus, we waned, right? But anything after that, we just start diving slowly down, right? And then we just think, I'll just go to the Gospels, right? It's way easier. We skip the whole narrative that's already being told. And so what we have to first understand is this is rooted in the story. Notice how Paul defines the Gospel starting off. He says this, the Gospel he promised to us, how? beforehand through his prophets and in the holy scriptures. This story is woven already into the story that's already being told. This gospel, this good news is, 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 the, is the climax of the story that's being told in human history. It says, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. This is mapping onto all the story that you've already been told. So, the gospel is not about us simply getting to heaven when we die, but it is about God reconciling heaven and earth that were ripped apart by evil. The gospel is not simply about each of us getting to heaven when we die. It is about God reconciling heaven and earth that were ripped apart by evil. So what we're going to do, and I do this often, and if you've been to our church for a while, you'd be like, he's doing it again. But we're going to go over the story of the scriptures, kind of at a high altitude, to kind of immerse ourselves in this story that is being proclaimed as the gospel. So first, you open up your scriptures and you open it up to the book of Genesis. And here we find the Garden of Eden. It is here where our imaginations run wild as to what that might be like, right? But we have these human beings, these people who were made in the image of God. And their purpose was to co-rule with God on the earth together with him. One of the most beautiful images I think that's in there is that God would take walks with the human beings in the cool of the day. 
Think about just taking a stroll with God and talking about the world that he's created, the plans that you have. And I think sometimes when we think about these moments in scripture, we get like hyper-spiritual. But the reality is, is it was real, it was tangible. Adam and Eve were these early human architects to construct a city and to construct a place for God and his people to live together. And God is taking walks with them, imparting his wisdom and his goodness with them. And we have this beautiful place of Eden. Now, it's important to understand this, is Eden is this image of heaven and earth together. God's space and human space dwelling in one space. God and humans dwelling together, co-ruling this earth that he has created. But then comes the fall, right? What happens is humans decide to vandalize God's good world by seizing autonomy from him. We say, we want to define good and evil for ourselves. Thanks, but no thanks. And in doing so, we bring death on God's good world. We usher in evil, right? We hear the lies of the serpent, this beast of old, and we fall into that way of thinking, thinking we could be like God and define good and evil for ourselves, bringing our own ruin upon us. Now, if you were to be God in your mind, you might think at that moment, right, you've created this amazing place and you've given these, the human beings one thing, just trust me to be the author of what is good. Let me dictate what is right and wrong. And they like flip the middle finger to you and say, we're doing what we want, right? In some of our human nature, we'd say, all right, wipe it clean, right? We're gonna start all over again. But is that what God does in the story? He warns them. He says, if you take of this fruit, if you seize the knowledge of good and evil for yourself, he says, you will surely die. But in the story, do they die? No, he ushers in mercy. And instead, he creates a way forward. That even at the pinnacle of human's rebellion, we get a promise from this faithful God. And he says that one day, one would come who the serpent that they would deceive, were deceived by would strike his heel, but he would crush the serpent's head, and he would overcome the beast that tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. There would come a human one who would restore all things, be a human one who would reconcile heaven and earth again because sin had torn them apart. God would bring them back together again. So as the reader of the story, you know what you spend the rest several chapters doing, several books doing? Looking for this human one. Who's the seed? right, comes on the scene, Moses. He has this crazy birth, right, where his mom puts him in a little basket, sends him down the river, ends up being picked up by Pharaoh's household and being raised in Pharaoh's household and looks like he's gonna overthrow Egypt. He's put in this position and power, right? But if you follow the story of Moses, he has faults and failures too. And so you think that he's the seed. He's the one who could overcome the beast and overcome the serpent, but he falls to the serpent as well. Later on in the story, we get David, Oh, man, worship leader, warrior, loves God. It's like if there's a Tinder profile for Christians, it's David, right? He's the, he's the pinnacle of what it should be, and you think he's the guy. He's the one, right? But if you follow in David's life soon, too, he is deceived by the lie of the beast, the lie of the serpent, and succumbs to his desires as well. And so the whole story, you're looking at Joshua, you're looking at Moses, you're looking at David, you're looking at all these different kings and people who come to power saying, who's going to be the one to restore all things? And after 400 years of silence, in a little town in Bethlehem, an announcement Good news is proclaimed. 
the angels say, we have good news that causes great joy for all people. And what's the news? The Messiah has been born to a poor immigrant family living in an Airbnb barn, right? The son is born. And he is the one who's promised to crush the snake's head. Then this man, this child grows up and becomes a man. And as he begins his ministry, he begins by uh, declaring, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And in doing so, healing every disease and sickness among the people. Jesus arrives on the scene and he begins proclaiming, I have good news, gospel, euangelion, the kingdom of God is near. Notice his proclamation is not, you get to go to heaven when you die, but rather, the kingdom of God is near. There's this moment in his life where when he begins his ministry, he comes into a church setting like this, and they would have somebody come up and read the scripture for the day, and it's Jesus' turn that day, and he decides to read out of the prophet Isaiah. So he comes up and he shares this, Luke 4, it'll be on the screen. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. This is after being tempted. And news about him spread throughout the countryside. He was teaching in the synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on that Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, went to the church, as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet of Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim what? Good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So imagine that. Church service, he comes up, reads this, this, this prophetic vision of the one who would come, the snake crusher, who would come and establish God's kingdom, rolls it up, sits down, and everyone's like, well, that's it? That's all you got to say? He's like, oh yeah, by the way, that was fulfilled today. Go ahead, proceed on with the service, you know? And, and this is, he's proclaiming that he's this snake crusher. He's this one who's going to come. And so not only is he proclaiming this message, but everywhere Jesus goes, evil, death, the demonic are being casted out. It says that, 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 that he not only just pro- proclaimed those things, but he really was freeing the oppressed. He really was healing the sick. He is driving out death, evil, and brokenness and establishing a new kingdom where God rules and reigns in the lives of people. And people begin to live how they were made to live. This is the kingdom he comes to proclaim. But you see, Jesus is making a claim that he's the bringer of this kingdom, but also that he's the king of this kingdom. And this sits wrong with the Jewish leaders at the time. Who does this poor carpenter think he is? He didn't even go to seminary, you know? He didn't even do the theological work. He's just going to come in here and say that he's this person. We will put that to the test. We will decide those things. And Jesus continually keeps turning the kingdom that the religious leaders have built on its head and establishing a new kingdom entirely. This did not sit well with them, so they make a plot. We're going to kill him. We're going to take this one, Jesus, out. And the crazy thing is that Jesus lets them. I want you to imagine you're an early follower of Jesus. 
Jesus is talking about things that you've, you've always felt in your heart and you just feel your heart burn within you and you respond and you begin to follow him, right? And the movement's going good. We're healing people, we're helping people, the kingdom is expanding and you're thinking, dude, Rome's gonna get overthrown any day now. Like, I'm not a number two or number three, but I'm pretty high, so I'll at least have an office somewhere, you know, probably with a view working in this thing with Jesus, and we think we're gonna take over the world, and it's gonna be great, and it's all gonna be under him, and goodness, and these bad guys get thrown out, and suddenly in the story, Jesus gets arrested in the garden. Uh, this isn't the way it's supposed to go. Hold on, time out. Well, we'll get him out. We'll figure something out, and then he is crucified, murdered, and you think, well, there goes that. We had these plans. What about this kingdom that was to come? Not realizing that this was the essence of the kingdom, the sacrificial love. That the essence of the kingdom that God would bring would be agape love. And here they are thinking, we've got him. We've destroyed him. But what happens? Three days later, Jesus rises from the grave, defeating sin the Satan, death and hell, and ascends to heaven, commissioning his people to go and share this good news, that the king is here, and he has risen, and he will come again. So the biblical narrative is that these two, heaven and earth, were split apart by sin, and we've been looking for this one who's gonna reconcile these things back together. And in the person and work of Jesus, heaven and earth begin to collide again. And anywhere he is, is the kingdom of God, where God rules and reigns, a.k.a. heaven. And Jesus is bringing heaven with him everywhere that he goes. And he tells his disciples that when you pray, tell, ask the Lord that his will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven and anywhere that his people are commissioned to go out they would go and fulfill and continue the ministry of jesus until one day heaven and earth are fully reunited which the biblical author is looking forward to called that zion the new jerusalem where heaven and earth are one and that one day in the future he will return and the whole goal is not about beaming us out of earth, but it's about him coming to earth and restoring earth to what it was intended to be, a place where God and his people dwell together. Notice that in Revelation does not say he is making all new things. It says he's making all things new. So it's not that earth is just bad and this is all going to hell in a handbasket, lighted on fire, who cares, right? But it's that this is the place that we are called to and that God will restore and the place we will live as it is made new by his presence. This is the whole story of the scriptures. This is the gospel message. Now this story is not just a claim that God is fulfilling his promise all the way from Genesis about the snake crusher, but it's also a promise that Jesus is king. So there's a theological framework called Christus Victor, which is, means Christ is victorious. And it's this idea that when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just him, him dying to fulfill this promise, but it was him dying to overcome his enemies. Notice what Paul says in his definition of the gospel, verse three, he says, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God, the king in power by the, his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is not just announcing this kingdom, he is the king of this kingdom that he's bringing. 
Notice how the gospel authors depict the cross as a royal enthronement. Jesus is given a crown. He is given a robe. And instead of being lifted up onto a throne, he is lifted up onto a cross. It is Jesus' royal enthronement this moment of the cross. It is here where he ascends to his rightful place as king. But if you've learned anything about this kingdom so far, it doesn't look anything like we think it would look. It is an upside-down kingdom where the first are last and the last are first, right? Where the, where the greatest are the least and the least are the greatest, where it is a kingdom not influenced by our metrics of power and success, but a kingdom governed by love. And we see this no more clearly than in the cross where Jesus' Jesus's death is his enthronement. And you might ask, how on earth does him dying make him king? You see, if you're familiar with boxing, there's this boxing philosophy called like rope-a-dope, right? Muhammad Ali was famous for this. And this is where you let the other guy literally just tire himself out hitting you. You'll literally lean back against the ropes and just be blocking some stuff and absorbing some hits. I could not. I'd be knocked out cold, right? But this is the th philosophy, right? So the guy gets super tired trying to exert and use all his energy to beat you, and then guess what happens? You've been d defending yourself good. You've been blocking most shots. So when he's gassed, guess who's fresh? You. And you could go in there and do work, right? This is what the cross was. As you read the Gospels, you see all of these powers of evil kind of really centralized on Jesus. The corruption within his own disciples, the corruption that's happening within the religious system that people who were otherwise enemies become friends all to kill Jesus. How the Roman Empire kind of comes alongside of that. It's all these powers of evil kind of centralized here at this moment of the cross all trying to exhaust itself on Jesus. You see, because we have a framework that it's not just human beings acting in a story, but there's actually spiritual beings beyond that that are working at play. And the Satan and his demons see Jesus coming in Brooklyn, and they're trying to do everything they can to stop him. So they centralize all these people and corrupt them with power and lust for power and, and success and money and all these different things to try and thwart this thing of Jesus. And they think, we killed him. We got him. And first Peter tells us that after Jesus dies, he went and preached to imprisoned spirits, right? He went and goes and proclaims this message. You think you won? Oh, but you played into our hand. This was the story from all along. The way that I'd crushed the serpent's head was not through sword and shield and through war, but it's through self-sacrificial love, giving up my life and conquering death. And so the powers, these beings lose their power because death could not hold the love of God. And when Jesus rose, he buried sin, death, hell, and brokenness in the grave, sealed the coffin, and gave new life. Notice what Paul says in Colossians. I quote this verse all the time because it is one of my favorites. It says this, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. All the powers, the workers of evil, the demonic, the broken had over us, they were disarmed and they were triumphed over, made a public spectacle because of Jesus' work on the cross. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says this, where, O oh death, is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection means not only that Jesus is king, but because he lives, now we also live. The next thing that the gospel means for us is that we have a new life. Paul says, through him, we have received grace. I love this quote. There are these philosophers and theologians of all different religions debating in C.S. Lewis's time about what God and how, how which gods are better and how they're doing different things. And they're trying to figure out how the Christian God is different from all these other gods. And C.S. Lewis wasn't invited to the conversation, but he stumbles in on it. And they say, C.S. Lewis, what makes the Christian God better than the rest of the gods? And without even missing a beat, he says, it's easy, it's grace, and walks right out of the room. And I love that. Because that's the message that Jesus proclaimed. Notice what Paul says in Colossians as well. He says this, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Because of what Jesus has done, we have new life. We are made alive. We were dead in our old ways, old life broken and longing for hope. And here came Jesus making us alive. Paul says first is that we receive the forgiveness of our sins. Because what Jesus has done, no matter what you've done, no matter who you've been, no matter where you have been, there is forgiveness for your sins. You can be forgiven. That means the debt that was held against you is let go. But I did and I've been, it's been let go. Because God in his great love bore your sins on the cross and has released you from that debt. Not only does he forgive us for our sins, but the scriptures are clear that he atones for our sin. Now I know atonement is like a super churchy word. All it essentially means is to cover Right, So I want you to imagine that like we went out for coffee and we're sitting there and you forgot your wallet, right? You forgot your wallet. No, you really forgot your wallet, right? And so you can't pay for the bill that we've just had. You know, we got two Starbucks coffees. You can't pay for the coffee. Atonement would be me covering the cost. Be me absorbing the cost into myself. I'll take the $6 hit, you know, on the cup of coffee. That idea of covering, of atoning, is the same thing here. We, as Paul said here in Colossians, had accrued a debt, a relational debt. Because what happens when you sin is it doesn't just affect you, and it doesn't just affect your relationship with God, it brings death into God's good world. This is why earth is as it is, because sin has corrupted God's good world. And anytime we commit sin, we bring in relational death, brokenness, heartache into God's good world. You think when you lie to somebody and they found out that you lied, that there's not a relational debt there? You think when you, when you are, are acting in a way that's rude or crude or hurtful, that there's not a relational debt there? And Jesus, in dying on the cross, says, to tell us that it is paid in full. I have covered the debt. 
But not only does he forgive us and he atones for us, but the scripture says he washes us clean. We are restored to a new version. We've been washed white as snow, as Isaiah has said, because of what Jesus has done for us. He purifies us. And I love what Paul says. He takes all of that, all this that he's occurred unto us, our debt, the forgiveness, washing us clean, the dirtiness, all those things. You know what he does? He nails it to the cross. And it goes into the grave with all the rest of it. And he sets you free to a brand new life in him. And then you know what he promises? It's not, it's like it just keeps getting better. And there's more. It's like an infomercial, right? Then his future becomes our future. Not only do we get a new life now, but we get a new life coming. Because Jesus rose from the dead, Paul says, we too will rise from the dead and have life eternal with him. This is the new life that is promised from the gospel. But not only do we get a new life, but we get to be born into a new family. Paul says this in that passage in Romans. He says, in a, uh, finishing a sentence, apostleship, to call all the Gentiles, which is us, to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also were among the Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus. You are called to belong to him. You're a part of a new family now. You may be an outcast. You may not fit in. Your family might be a whole hot mess. But because of what Jesus has done, you're born into a new family. You want to know who that family is? Look around. All around the world, brothers and sisters gathering around Jesus, a part of this new family. From every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, from every political party, right? From every framework, followers of Jesus are born into this brand new family. I love what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. He says this, as you come to him, the living stone, which is Jesus, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You're born into a new family. And guess what? The door's open for anyone to join this family. It's not exclusive. It's not, you're not allowed here. You're not, no, the door's wide open. He's received us, we receive others. So here's the great thing. I want you to think about something that you're passionate about, like something that you get like, 
you know when you get overly hype about these things because everyone in the room starts to get eyes glazed over when it gets brought up and you just start going, right? There's things that you're just ecstatic about, whether it's uh, photography or Star Wars or coffee or restaurants or whatever it is, right? Whatever your thing is, when it comes up, you're like, oh, you have no idea how long I'm going to talk about this. And you just start it with excitement and with joy. And then you've been around people that are really excited, right? You've been around people that you have no idea what they're talking about, but they're just amped. And so you're just, uh -huh, uh -huh, you know, just sort of receiving whatever it is. This is how we should be about this message of the gospel, this good news. Now, I know the fear in the introverts already, talking to people, you know, sharing this thing, right? And I know the excuses that all of us have don't have a theological degree, can't do that whole 30-minute recap that you did about the whole story of this whole thing, right? All these different things, and that's not what you're called to. The scriptures do not say, if you're an Enneagram type three, share the gospel. It says, all of us are to tell this story. We have no problem telling stories about other things that we're passionate about, but if this is true, is there a greater story to tell in the world than this one here? And you don't even have to have it all together. I love in John 9, the guy who was blind, who was able to see, when the, when the Pharisees are interrogating him, tell us about this man, what did he do? What did he do? You know what his whole response is? The whole gospel summed up for him. Dude, couldn't see? I could see now. That's all I know, right? And that's all that we have to say is that I was something else and now I'm something completely different because of what Jesus did. Dude, I don't get it. I don't know the Hebrew and the Greek. I don't have it all figured out. But one thing I do know is I was this and now I'm here I am today. That's all I can tell you, man. I was blind, but now I can see. And the incredible thing is that you don't have to do this just in your own might or power, but God gives you his spirit to empower you to do that very work. As we invite people into this new family, the, the doors are expanding, and this means, lastly, that we get a new identity. I started the message by saying, we only discover who we are, why we're here, and where we are going in the personal work of Jesus. You only first discover who you are. That you're a son or a daughter, made in the image of God. You weren't an accident. You weren't forgotten about. You're not on the fringe. You are, as Peter says, God's special possession. I want you to think about if you had a fire in your house. That one thing that you'd make sure to grab, whatever it is, photos, the MacBook, whatever it would be for you, like fire, the first thing you want to go get. Hopefully it's your family, right? Whatever it would be, that special possession, that's how God feels about you. You are his special possession, the one thing that he'd leave heaven for to come get you. You're a daughter or son, chosen, loved, called created in his image, and loved beyond measure and invited to the story. That's who you are. Why we're here, we are called to partner with him in this good news, this message of goodness that the king is here by continuing the work of Jesus that he started and inviting his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. How? Through the way God's already wired and made you. There are people bringing in pockets of the kingdom of God by cutting hair, by serving coffee, by being moms and dads, by being exactly where God has called them to be, by sharing this message of Jesus right where they are. It does not mean you have to sign up for a ministry opportunity. It means your life is a ministry opportunity. And God's already working through you. The only thing is we must be available to what he's, what he's doing through us. And last, where we're going. 
I told you the whole end of this story is not for us to get beamed to heaven when we die, but it's for heaven to come here. Where we're going, we're staying here, but the kingdom's coming. That's the story that we live into. We are marching towards the kingdom of God, awaiting its full arrival. This is what we mean when we use the term the gospel. All of this is God pouring out his love for you. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up. We're gonna close this message down. And I wanna invite you here and now that if for you, this is the first time you've heard that message or the first time you heard it like that. I'm not gonna ask you to stand or come forward or do anything like that, but I want you here and now to do business with God. If Jesus is calling you, you're feeling a burden within you, I want you to respond to that call. Surrender over your life to him and begin to follow him. This is the invitation of Jesus to his disciples and to you. Come and follow me. And I want you to respond. If you are a Christian and there's just new aspects of this that have been brought to light, we don't ever want to become comfortable with the gospel. We don't want to come, yes, we know God loves us, for us, and the Son, and we're creating the image. We want to be, again, renewed with that zeal, with that love again for the gospel. Because this is the only message that matters. This is the only thing that has the power to free and to, and to change things. And so we don't want this to be a story that we memorize, but the story we live into and the story that constantly brings us to our knees. So as we worship, I'm going to ask you, worship him. Because, man, if everything we talked about, isn't he worthy? Isn't he worthy of all the worship that we could, everything that we could muster up, every, every vocal cord, every ounce of breath that is in us to sing to him, isn't he worthy? And let us go and live into this story and share this story. That Jesus and his great love for us has come and established his kingdom. And his kingdom is coming again. And we live in that kingdom with him. Let's stand. Jesus, we love you. We love you so much, God. Well, let us be blown away. To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.